Carnivorous couch, shit happens once a week It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak Carnivorous couch With Brady and Rob Hi everybody, hi everybody, hi everybody, and welcome to another episode of Carnivorous Couch, the spoiler full podcast where we do a film a week with two film geeks, me. And me. Me being Rob. Me being Brady. And this week we did um, Before Sunset, which is the 1994 Richard Linkletter film starring Ethan Hawke and Julia Delphi. Oh no, this is the 2000 and... Four. Uh, four. Sorry. 2004. Sorry. I, I was doing, I knew it was nine years, so I was doing the math from last year's before sunset. Oh, yes. But I subtracted 19 years instead. So, yes, uh, before uh, midnight, or not midnight, sorry. Before sunrise. sunrise is 96. 95. 95. This is 2004, and before sunset is, of yeah. course, Before sunrise, which we podcasted with uh, Ben Stein and Ross Murray. And, yes. Uh, yeah, check that one out. That was, uh, see, I think that's number like. 11 or something like that. Wow, that's good. I didn't know that. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, why don't you see how much I don't know? Actually, we're going to get... Hey, Steve, can you check on that for me? That goat's got a poor attitude these days. I'm telling you. Steve's not the goat. Steve's the guy who gets the goat out of here. I know what I said. (laughs) (laughs) I was close. It's number 12. 12? Yeah, that's very close. Anyway, all right, why don't we get into a little plot synopsis? All right, so just to fill you in, in case you're coming into this having not seen Before Sunrise, which incidentally, both Ross and myself watched this movie in theaters before we'd actually seen its prequel, uh, and it played nicely, so you can watch them out of order, though I do encourage you to watch them in order, because why the heck not? But anyway, uh, as I was saying, a brief... Uh, primer on Before Sunrise. That was about Ethan Hawke's American Texan character just out of college riding around on a train through Europe when he was dumped by his girlfriend and meeting a French girl played by Julie Delpy on a train and they agree to spend an evening in Vienna together, slowly fall in love before realizing they must part ways. And before doing so, they agree that they will meet again, same place in six months. Right. Well, first they go five years. Ooh, five years is not a long time. Okay, how about a year? Uh, it's still a long time. Six months. Okay. Yeah, so at this point, we've quickly learned that that meeting uh, was waylaid. It didn't go according to plan. So we catch it up. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. It just <laughs> straight up didn't happen. Let's not mince words here. And so we find Hawk's character, Jesse. Uh, Jesse and Celine are our two characters. And we find that he's actually written a book about his experience that is actually a time bestseller. And he's touring through Europe, kind of giving uh, book tours and signings. And so we catch up with him explaining kind of what the book's about. And, you know, he, people are asking him, well, did they get together or did they not? And so he, he says... That would well, take the piss out of the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. It's a good litmus test for uh, how optimistically you feel about human connection and relationships, the question of whether they did or didn't. And then he announces this idea for his uh, next book, which is actually uh, an important theme in Linklater's filmography, which is this idea of time, and that he wants to make an entire book within the span of a pop song, a four-minute pop song that, while listening to this pop song and watching a man watching his daughter dance on a table, 
transports him back to uh, the time where he met his wife and we're listening to the same song and kind of stands in for this idea that time is always happening, that it's not this thing that every moment is happening yeah, all at once. Yeah, relativity, man. Yeah, and, and a neat piece of editing, as he's explaining that time is a lie, we smash cut onto Julie Delpy's face, the current Julie Delpy, uh, who's now standing in the bookstore watching him wrap up his his interview. Yeah, and then we cut back to him, who has just noticed her. Yes. And, you know, you get that facial tick, like, ah, yeah. So uh, that's it then. Um, And you know, uh, for those of you who can't see, which is all of you, because uh, you're blind and you have no eyes. No, uh, because we're on audio here, but I just made a face, much like Ethan's. Uh, there are so many faces yes. you miss right. if you're just listening to this. Mm-hmm. We really encourage you to buy tickets to sit in the studio with us. They're only $20. Do it. Yes. Yes, it's uh it's a moon-based studio now since it's been uh, rebuilt after uh well, the fire. Um but it's nice. We've got escape pods, uh a nice moonscape, a a bleeding astronaut and um you know, a cake that says you're never going to go to the moon, dude. <laughs> Bleeding astronaut sounds like a good cocktail. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was yeah. funny because when it was painted like this, it was actually because I wanted to have a, a, I want a moon base. That's one of my life goals. Yeah. That's is to build a base on the moon. And that every, and when I finally do, everyone's going to have to come up there and uh, yeah. eat a giant cake that says you're never going to go to the moon, dude. They're going to have to eat their words in the form of cake. A whole cake. Right. And so, so Maddie painted this place up as, as my little birthday present, but I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I think when I originally walked in, I my back was to the moonscape, <laughs> so all I saw was the bleeding astronaut and a cake that said I wasn't going to go to the moon, <laughs> and I was like, "Is that me? And I'm going to die? Or this is kind of mean? This is what will come of your <laughs> folly. People will die. There was blood on your hands and cake. <laughs> exactly. So, um, anywho." Anywho, that, <laughs> that's that's uh, twenty bucks, and you can yeah, you can enjoy that experience of being told your dreams are folly. Yeah, exactly. By us, Brady. <laughs> By us. Tweet us at Carney Couch for more information. <laughs> All right. So then, from there, uh, uh, it, it quickly becomes this game of time where Hawk's character has a, a flight. He has to get to the airport in a couple hours, I think. And so, right from the start. Time is kind of throwing hurdles at Hawk and Delpy. They, so they have this very short amount of time to walk around Paris and talk. But even at the start, his uh, book guy, his book tour press agent, I think, is like, wait, 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 did you did you sign all your stuff? You have to sign a bunch of books. It's oh, like, yeah, I signed them all. Oh, I, I did, okay. But it's like, oh, wow, that already could have derailed their entire ability to s- meet each other again. If he didn't just lie and go like... Yeah, well, I assume he's telling the truth, but it's... Yeah, either way, it's... Uh, it's time throwing stumbling blocks at our ability to connect with each other. And so they start walking and talking, and this is a very dialogue-driven film. Right. Uh, and it's done in real time. So uh, <laughs> rather than Right, like the time they have together is the real time of, of the movie. Unlike yeah. the predecessor, where there were certain jumps and skips. Yeah, but this I mean, is just straight up, the hour and a half is the hour and a half you watch. Exactly. Like Before Sunrise, time plays an extremely important part. But yeah, this time... Uh, I'd say it fits the urgency. This film is a very urgent film about time because they're always a breath away from having to leave one another, and it's kind of about putting that off. Uh, so 
Just to let's uh, there's a lot of talk we're, in this. We're probably just gonna have to synopsize kind of the main points. Yeah, let's because we can't just go scene by scene like we normally do because exactly. it's it is the conversation we're about to have about the movie is about the conversations that we're gonna have. So there's no need to do them first in the plot. Or or at least I'd say up to a point. So let's say that all of this happens while they walk around Paris, drink coffee, yeah. walk through a garden. We find out um, very importantly that. Hawk did show up uh, that day six months later, right? But Delpy wasn't able to because her grandmother's funeral right. ended up on that day. And uh, Grandma was a bit of a, an important character in the first movie. You know, they think they talk about her a bit, and so as a result, their connection didn't happen. We learn that uh, Delpy has become a kind of in an inverse of the way the characters were in the first movie. She's a bit more cynical now and a pragmatist, and she works as an activist cleaning up water, and so. She sees the world as kind of this very troubled place, whereas Hawk, the writer, maybe has come a bit more to the romantic side where Delpy was before. Uh, and so they talk, and there's confusion about well, whether Delpy's or not... still a romantic, though. Like, she's... Well, she's a bleeding heart. Like, do you know how fucked up the world is? No, yeah, yeah. she's definitely... She's very passionate, um, but has become maybe a bit more jaded in the nine years since... And so uh, oh, right, right, right. there's also some confusion as to whether or not they had sex because Delpy claims like, no, we never did that. Uh, and they talk about kind of time and the universe. <laughs> and then eventually this all builds. I mean, all of this is lovely dialogue, but what's always simmering underneath is the things that they want to say to each other. The fact that, wow, we're actually seeing each other right now. We only have a couple hours and there's a lot under the surface about what we weren't able to do when we didn't meet that day. So eventually what happens is Hawk, uh, <laughs> as a means of still put it, putting off their departure, says, oh, wait, before I leave for my flight, let's get on this boat. And Delpy's like, no, no, that's that's tourist shit. Like, I don't want to be on one of those big river boats on the Seine. But it's like, OK, we'll just have my driver pick me up there. And while they're on the boat, Delpy starts talking about how she never forgets people and how it's hard for her to move on from relationships because the specificity of individuals uh, has a, an emotional connection for her. And in that moment, we slowly see Hawk finally just, his face is telling us enough is enough, and that he finally is just going to put it all out on the line. And he says, you know what? I wrote this book because I wanted to meet you, have you come to this store so I could ask, where the fuck were you that day? And why did life uh, organize things this way that we couldn't meet one another? But I told you why I wasn't there. Yeah, I know why. I know the reasons, but... In a cosmic sense, why? Yeah. Um, and so from there, things quickly get to that boil that the earlier parts of the films have been promising. We find out that there's a lot of imperfection in both their lives. Delphi doesn't feel that she can connect with people because that night was such a big one for her that after it didn't work, it was just relationships since then have been underwhelming. Uh, Hawk is married with a kid, but he has no passion with his wife. And... Um, then they drive. They're in the car, and the then she goes yeah. batshit nuts. Yeah, she she has a meltdown, and then he has a quieter meltdown too. Uh, right, because he interesting in well, we'll talk about it later. But in gender roles, the guy can't have the crazy meltdown, but the woman can. <laughs> and then she can go, "Don't touch me." I'm about yeah. Um, yeah, don't touch me. Which is interesting because there's uh, one of my favorite shots in the movie in that same scene is. Then there's a scene where Delpy almost brushes Hawk's hair while he's opening up and then pulls back and decides not to. Right. Uh, so eventually they get to Delpy's place, and here is where there really should be the goodbye. I mean, she's at home. 
He's got to get to the airport. He's already running a bit late. But he decides, you know, no, I'm going to walk her to her door. Like, I'll be right there. Hold the car. And he talks her into letting him come up and have a cup of tea and listen to one of her songs because she's talked about her desire to want to play music more. And so this I really love. This is like kind of a almost a puzzle, like a Greek labyrinth puzzle to me. She's like, okay, I have three songs. You can pick one. And what does she say? Like, one's about my cat. One's about my grandmother or something like that, or like maybe a political song. And then she gets to the third and she says, it's, it's a waltz. And Hawk shrewdly picks up that the one one of these songs is being hidden. It's very vague as to what it's about. So he picks the waltz and she plays it. And what opens up is actually a song all about their night together. In English. In English. <laughs> um, and it, kind of hearkening back to uh, what Hawk was saying about a pop song, this idea of all of this span of time happening within a song. And this is an entire song encapsulating their relationship. And then the f- movie ends with him having his cup of tea and Delpy talking about another song, a Nina Simone song that Hawk puts on. And she's talking about, oh, I, I saw her the last time in concert. And she was so great. And she starts doing a Nina Simone impression and going, ooh, baby, ooh, and dancing. Oh, I was just wanted to talk a little bit about what's going on. Dancing know. like the daughter. <laughs> Maybe you play a little more story. and I'll sing a little more. Um, and Hawk just watches her doing this, doing her impression. And then finally, Delpy looks really at him. Really sexily, by the way. Yeah, really sexily. Um kind of croons over at him and points and says, ooh, baby, you are going to miss that plane. And Hawk says, I know. Yes, I am. And we fade to black. Yeah, it's interesting that there was this whole like deadline for the plane. Uh, I mean, we're, we're going to get into this. Obviously, that's the end of the plot synopsis. Good job, Brady. Oh, thank you. Kept it under 10 for something that's very uh, verbose. Um, but at any rate... Um, it's interesting that we have this whole thing about a plane where it's like, well, you know, really, you could just catch a later flight. Oh, yeah. Like, it's the end of his book tour. He doesn't have another stop and blah, blah, blah. But there has to be sort of this facade of they both want to go. But they don't want to go. But they do want to go. Like, I, I can't do this. I can do this. I can, and that's that's the main crux of the film is the... The uh yeah. the the Because, I mean, like, every time that they're going to split up, he goes like, Oh, no, 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 we'll give you a ride. And then, and then she'll be like, no, no, I couldn't. And he's like, oh, come on. And then she goes, okay. <laughs> like, it's like that, uh, yeah. um, who was it, Confucius? No, uh, somebody, uh, Chinese emperors or something like that, where like, you had to offer them the gift three times, and they would deny it the first two times. Oh, yeah. It, but with them, it's just one. It's just like, no, no, I couldn't. Okay. <laughs> like, immediately. <Right. laughs> well, maybe, that's, uh, maybe that speaks to that line earlier when he says, time is a lie, that... All these flimsy excuses for why, oh, you have to go. You've, you've got this. You've got this flight to catch. But may, you don't have to go, maybe, if you don't want to. There's right. o- and in the end, I think uh, this isn't really spoken of in the film, but I think it's maybe part of Linklater's filmography. There's just one time when we finally have to say goodbye, and that's at the very, very end of our lives. So uh, how do we want to do How Do We Like It? Uh, yeah. Hey, 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 how do we like it? Um, <laughs> I love this movie. I, it's a, a masterpiece to me. This this one, I'll I'll I haven't planted the masterpiece flag in a long time. I'm planting it. You, you know, like Ugh. even though this one does fit that, I just hate that word. I you don't have to use it. But uh, a total A for me. Uh, I don't, and also, you should not, <laughs> unless you want to incur my wrath. Uh, I. 
I masterpiece isn't even a good enough word for my love for this movie. Oh, it's a horrible word. <laughs> it's a horrible, horrible for everything. An opus. How about an opus? Okay, I'll go Magnum with opus. opus. Yeah. Or Magnum Opus. Is that the brand of condoms that they used? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it was the Magnum Opus. Uh, now, okay, I, I give this movie an A+. I love it. Um, it may be the best film of Linklater's career, if it's not boyhood. Uh, but, yeah, it's just it's just a beautiful, slow burn of a film. It does. It's about time, and it does neat things with its time structure. And, like, the first half of the movie, before they get on the boat, pretty much, is just a lot of lovely dialogue. And, and it's lovely just to listen to them speak it and watch them act. But what really gives it its kick is that it's actually just bubbling under the surface what they really want to say. And as time keeps going and going, the urgency builds until finally that boat scene just is just a torrent of, of emotion. And it's, yeah, it's, it's beautiful and thematically rich all the way through. I love it. I love it. Great. Um, I also love this movie. Uh, when I first watched it, I'm like, wow, that might be my new favorite movie because my favorite movie has been, you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit since I've been asked that question. Um, we skipped through some scenes right before we watched it because we actually did watch it like three weeks ago or something like that. Yeah. But um, not to say I didn't have that same feeling the second time, but we were just kind of glossing over everything. I wasn't allowing myself to get entrenched in it. I just wanted to be refreshed. So I'm not going to say that that can't be true in the future. It's just not true yet. However, it is an mm. A for me. All right. Well, hey, that's, that is a I'd, rare I don't know if I've done that. I, uh, Chinatown? I think I have Chinatown in A, and I think I gave the conversation in A, too. Those are those are worthy of A, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, yeah. I think that I think that's about it in uh, this almost one year of Carnivorous Couch. Yeah, it's coming up. It's coming up. What is this, a paper anniversary? What kind of anniversary is the one year? Well, the website expires and gets renewed on the 16th of September, and that was, like, maybe uh, a week after our first, or, like... Three days, either a week or like three days. It was a, it was a Tuesday. I took it off work in order to uh, make this thing. So now we've built it. Uh, I c- I keep talking here, Rob. I I want to look something up. Oh. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, so I thought it was amazing. I love I love just the idea of this um, this boiling pot. You should have Steve look that up for you. Um, that's why we have him, right? Unpaid intern, Steve. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so it goes for, uh, this, it's just, just kind of like this teapot that's never quite going to whistle. It's like a broken teapot with a hole, and there's just like a chip out of the hole, and it only really whistles if there's a lot of pressure, and there's only a lot of steam pressure once the water of, you know, the uh, willingness to dilute oneself gets evaporated, and that the entire thing is filled with steam, man, and then it finally... Whistles at the end. Powerful. Yeah. Uh, what well said, Rob. Well said. Um, yeah, no, it's it's about tension and uh, eroticism that never actually goes to sex, but is always the suggestion of sex. Sexy words. Sexy, sexy words. Indeed. Uh, so we did, hey, how do you like it? We got to do what's it all about, even though that kind of, we've already touched on that a little bit. No, we can. What's it all about? What's it all about? There, you know, I, I think there are a lot of things you could say it's about. I mean, of course, it's a romance, and it's it's very much about human connection. But 
having just seen Boyhood, what I really want to say it's about is time. It's and that's why time plays such an important role in these movies, and why each has its own kind of time structure. Uh, yeah, it's about kind of what Linklater. I think I mentioned this in the Sunrise podcast. What Linklater says in Waking Life: this idea of of putting off the eternal and the idea that time is always happening, that it's always this moment, and there's and these important decisions we make about who we choose to let into our lives, and just. Yeah, it's it's about time and human connection and the fact that eventually we'll all have to say goodbye, but the not wanting to say goodbye. Yeah, it's it's just a rich movie about love and time. Yeah, I mean, like whenever I think about this and how it's about time, much like you're talking about, I always think about Star Trek: The Next Generation and Q taking them off into you know places in the universe that are so far away. And it's mm-hmm. like there are things out here. You humans are so limited with your belief that somehow space and time and matter and and consciousness are all linear separate concepts when they're really all connected and uh it's interesting to be able to kind of draw that out when you're talking about something so ordinary like just two people walking through a city and talking and just the idea of them referencing their pastime together there's that word again but you know being nine years earlier and then, at the same time, referencing what happened in between, and, and you know, making kind of these things a reality, um, despite the fact that they're trying to to push that reality away so that they can create their own idealized reality. And then, as we see by the end of it, uh, they do. Yep. So there's that one aspect. I think we could say something more than just time, though. Oh yeah. I d- like d- like what else? What else is this all about? I mean, it's uh, like the thing is how to say this without it being cliche. And I guess I kind of already have because like, yeah, in a way, this is about romance. And so is any other romantic movie. But it's it's about romance in a very uh, just a very intelligent, insightful way. It's a yeah, it's about human connection. I mean, not just in a way it doesn't speak just to romance, but to any kind of misconnection the idea that you know even though like are things faded do we have free will uh and you know hawk says a good line which is that okay yeah like life allows us to meet people but we can screw it up that maybe someone we were meant to meet something goes wrong and uh yeah it's just about missed opportunities and the idea of whether or not we have a second chance to make these <laughs> these connections good and yeah it's just about the kind of messy business of of love and connection as a whole well said um yeah i don't think i have anywhere else to go with this maybe we should do uh understudy uh yeah all right and be right. right back with that we're so sorry we couldn't get the actors to do the scene from this screenplay but we've got two understudies and to be honest they're probably more famous anyway So try to catch the actors Try to guess the movies Tweet us at C-A-R-N-Y Couch This game called Understudy Is happening, happening, happening right now Hey man, what are you doing here? I fancy myself as the social lubricator of the dream world Helping a people become looser a little easier you know, cut all the fear and anxiety stuff and just rock and roll. By becoming lucid, you mean you know, you just know you're dreaming, right? Yeah. 
and then you can control it. They're more realistic and less bizarre than non-lucid dreams. You know, I just woke from a dream. It wasn't a typical dream. It seemed more like I walked into an alternate universe or something. Yup. It's a real. I mean, technically it's a phenomenon of a sleep, but you can have so much damn fun in your dreams. And of course, everyone knows fun rules. Yeah. So uh, what, what was going on in your dream? Oh, lots of people were talking. You know, some of it was just absurdist, like a strange movie or something. But mostly it was just people going about whatever really intensely. I woke up wondering, where did all this stuff come from? You can control that, you know. Do you have these dreams all the time? Oh, hell yeah. I'm always a going to make the best of it. But the trick is, you got to realize that you're dreaming in the first place. You got to be able to recognize it. You got to be able to ask yourself, hey, man, is this a dream? See, most people never ask themselves of that when, they make, when they're awake, or especially when they're asleep. Seems like everyone's sleepwalking through their walking state or awake walking through their dreams. Either way, they're not going to get much out of it. The thing that snapped me into realizing I was dreaming was, uh, yeah, my digital clock. I couldn't really read it. It was like the circuitry was all screwed up or something. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a real common. And a small printed material is pretty tough too. Very unstable. Another good tip-off is trying to adjust light levels. You can't really do that. If you see a light switch nearby, turn it on and off. Just see if it works. That's one of the few things you can do in a lucid dream. What the hell? I can fly around, have an interesting conversation with Albert Schweitzer. I can explore all of these new dimensions of reality. Not to mention I can have any kind of sex I want, which is way cool. So I can adjust light levels. Eh, so what? Boy, that's not like one of the things you do that test like you're dreaming or something, right? Yeah, like I said, you can totally train yourself to recognize it. I mean, just hit a light switch every now and then. If the lights are on and you can't turn them off, then most likely you're a dreaming. And then you can get down to business. And believe me, it's unlimited. Hey, you know what I've been working on lately? What's that? Oh, oh man, it's a way ambitious, but I'm getting better at it. You're going to dig this. 360 vision, man. I can see in all directions. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, man, well, I got to go. That was undecided. Tweet us your answer at C-A-R-N-Y couch. Hi, everybody. We're back. That was quite an interesting understudy. Once again, tweet us at C-A-R-N-Y couch, Carney couch, uh, if you know what movie that was from or what bad impression we were doing of people who weren't in that movie. Yeah. And maybe we'll put on women's shoes and make the other one walk around and take pictures and put them on the website. But yeah. only if you do that and somebody wins or loses three times. And so far, none of you have done it at all. So, uh, damn it. At any rate, uh, we want to talk about a couple individual scenes. I know Brady's got some stuff in mind. I've got at least one, at least one thing in mind. Right. And, uh... Well, let me talk about this opening, and then, yeah, I'd like to talk about a couple of our best shots, because Rob has a, a really good best shot that says cool things about the movie itself, I think. Mm. Uh, but first, something I didn't mention in the plot synopsis is that the opening, the very opening scenes of Before Sunset <laughs> are a mirror of the closing scenes of Before Sunrise. So what happens at the end of Before Sunrise is once Hawk's gotten on the train and they've parted ways... We have this shot in the daylight of all the places they've walked through, you know, the, the locations of their great dialogue, but without them there. It's just the places divorced of the people. And so 
in the opening of Before Sunset, we get the inverse of that. Or rather, we get it before it actually happens. We get, But then again, with a movie this uh, sneaky about time, maybe it is happening or already happened or who knows. But we get the places where they're going to walk and talk through uh, without them there. And that is interesting to me. I, I don't know what exactly Linklater's trying to say, but I know it has something to do with time as well. This idea of, you know, these places are here, and they're here when we're gone. And, you know, all of our... It kind of speaks to maybe our transience, which is something the movie has on its mind. That, you know, even once we've had our little... Walked across the stage, had our little play, met with each other, some of these places will still be here. But then again, we also get a scene later in the movie where they're talking about Notre Dame, where uh, Delpy says, well, even that will one day be gone. Everything. And that there was a church on there beforehand. Yeah, and there was a church beforehand. So everything's transient, but or in maybe, a way that's... Or maybe the definition of a place is is you being there and the place existing with you. And if it doesn't exist with you, now it's totally a different place. Yeah. Or a different you Which know, sounds state of like, matter. Which sounds like it could fit into a certain movie whose title I won't say because it's too... We've I think we've already it. said the title of that movie. Uh, did we already say Waking Life? Yeah. Okay, Waking we're, Life. You were talking about uh, something Linkletter said in Waking Life in the first half. Oh, that's right. We well, can, no, we can, of course, talk about Linkletter's other movies. Yeah, like, that's true. Why would I say that? Right, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, Rob, tell us about your favorite shot, because I, I agree. Okay, so my favorite shot is, it's really interesting because, uh, I mean, we've had this time where he like keeps pushing things off, and he keeps going, uh, like, no, I got time. Uh, yeah, no, no, I totally signed the books. Let's go get a cup of coffee. Yeah, let's walk around. Okay. Uh, no, 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 we can do this this way. We'll just have the car pick me up uh, where this boat drops off. And so they're on the boat. It is an interesting thing because they, well, they talk and they walk around the boat a little bit, and they eventually head off to a place more or less isolated. There's nobody else in the frame, whereas earlier on they were kind of talking about, oh, being a tourist and blah, blah, blah. And they sit on the front of this boat, and they uh, they sit next to each other with their backs to the front of the boat so that uh, the water is behind them. And uh, I had a thought, and I can't remember what it is now, but it was, it was something Ethan Hawke takes his foot, and he steps halfway over the railing, like there, it, what seems almost like a restricted area, and he just puts one foot in front of the railing, like which is a little too close to the edge, and one foot not. And anyway, they're facing each other, and they're talking about... What are they talking about? I think at that point they're talking about uh, his marriage. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. And uh, yes, he was talking about how kind of their... Well, no, they were talking about the marriage, but they started another topic around the time that they sit here. And I'm not quite sure how that ties in, but the beauty of the shot is that they're kind of wrapping up their conversation. They know the whole thing's drawing to a close, and ever uh, further in the background, there's the shoreline coming closer and closer as the boat approaches it, kind of, you know, giving this giant <laughs> backdrop of this foreboding sense of their time together coming to a close, which obviously neither one of them seemed to want to happen. So Right. Uh, and I don't know, it's just... The amount of depth in that shot, I don't know what kind of lens he uses or anything like that, but there's no, it's not really blurry in the background. It's like in sharp focus, um, both them at like a very wide angle lens or a wide depth of field, so that, uh, you know, kind of the reality of this coming to a close and them and their small time together in, front in the uh, foreground of the frame are really both larger than life, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Uh you know, I'm I'm completely with you. And and once again, you know, 
as we talk about this, I'm convinced that, yeah, time really is the centerpiece of this. What I think is cool is in this movie, even more maybe than in Before Sunrise, I feel time is a character. And in the way you describe that shot, like, yeah, time is what we're rushing toward. That sure is a symbol of a time that isn't there yet, but that's imminent. It's going to be there very soon, and then you're going to have to come up with a new reason well, to the, put off the inevitable. The boat arrived and Henri at at Henri Quet. Yeah, Henri Quet, <laughs> which is Henry IV in French. Right, but I mean, it's really just the name Henry and the French word for four, but it sounds so different in French. Anyway, sorry, the I cut you off. Uh, you were talking about time as a character. Well, yeah, no, it's it's a character, and what I like is the the thing I got. I I like this movie because like. I get different experiences each time I view it, which is impressive for a movie that's only like 80 minutes. Uh, and what I really felt watching it this time is, yeah, time is just such a hungry animal that, you know, even so we get to that shore and then Hawk is able to say, oh, well, we'll put you in my car and we'll drop you off. Yeah, just so we can keep talking. And then we focus on the car driving. We get the outside of the car driving before we even cut to them. And even then, now that the new excuse has been made, Time is still, still wants more. It's, it's hungry, and it's up to human beings to put it off. And that's when they both have their, their respective breakdowns, hers being a lot more. But, I mean, it's just like, the, just the feeling of, I'm in this car, like, we can't possibly push this off any further. Like, we're, it's coming to a close, and they just both get really f flustered and like, fucking no, I don't, <laughs> not yet, yeah. not yet, not yet. So Time is inexorable. Right. Uh, well, so since you did your favorite shot, I was going to come up with one, too. I don't know if I have because uh, there are so many really gorgeous shots. But why don't, we, why don't we get a little, just a sprinkling of feministiness here, or potential it, it opening up uh, a topic. So a big topic in film with regard to women is the idea of the male gaze, which is often a very negative thing. This idea of a, a leering, lecherous human eye, man's eye behind the camera. Uh, yeah, yeah, the the gays and the um, I guess the idea of chopping women into pieces with the camera, but not framing a woman as a whole because right. of the fear of uh, a woman framed as a whole without a dick is basically a castrated man. Is yes. the way Freud would put it, I think, uh, and that's what Mulvey and the gays all draws upon. Indeed. Okay. Now, I don't know how much this actually has to say with most of the discourse around the male gaze, but I'd like to propose um, the very final shot. Of just Hawk, the camera basically is Hawk in this moment, watching Delpy tell her her long, funny story about the one time she saw Nina Simone in concert. Right. And it's a shot that focuses completely and curiously on a woman, on a woman's performance. And it is sexy, uh, but I feel like it's a very humanizing version of a gaze because it's it's watching her well, it's and never her. pulling back. Yeah. And it's, it's all of her. He's looking at, yeah, at her as a whole. He's not looking at just at her legs or just at her. It's all of her, and her and hearkening back to that story, it's this is all time happening right here. This story, watching this person, wanting to be with this person for as long as you can, um, and I, yeah. So just in terms of thematic depth, I'll propose that as another really well shot scene in a simple way. Yes, it is a very well shot scene. Um, well, hey, this brings me to something, because this is, Linklater is sometimes, by people who don't appreciate him as much as I do, is slapped with being maybe a bit too simplistic visually. 
and I'd propose this as a counter argument because I, I feel like this movie has a good sense of momentum, almost like a roller coaster. There's that one scene where we just stop at the bench. We've been walking for a long time, and all of a sudden it's like, no, nope, it's time to sit again. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, like, that the idea of the way that he deals with motion is, I mean, it's not, it's not fancy, I guess. People go like, oh, it's just so simple. It's just like there's, a, there's a certain beauty in the simpleness of just these two people facing the camera and kind of they're not changing, but the as they walk, the, the scenery around them changes kind of as, as they voyage together as one item through time or through an environment or, or through this. And, and it's just such a simple idea. Yeah. Know? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, but I mean, it's it's a really... It has a really complicated effect because you know as time goes on, everything changes. But they're they're staying pretty much exactly the same. And then every now and then he breaks it up with, say, Ethan Hawke deciding to lie down on the banister and slide down, or right. um, or there's know. that leaf that falls into the frame, yeah, or something like that. Um, which I'm not quite sure what that would say, but it it does break the monotony of, oh, well, this is a. Johnny's one trick pony here and it's like no well but it's not it's, it has a very dramatic effect it's very well broken up by sort of just uh playful i suppose um actions by the characters themselves yeah yeah i agree and for a filmmaker and a movie that kind of sees time as this russian doll full of meaning and moments happening on top of moments yeah it kind of fits that like every now and then Something just happens suddenly because time is like that. It's coiled and uh, there's more happening than meets the eye in every moment, I think Linklater would say, which is uh, like with Boyhood, why he's so fixated on the mundaneness because there's something electric happening underneath it. Oh, yeah. There's always just something very interesting about a, a simple event that's not, you know, just things in snippets. So uh, his marriage or her boyfriend or... Uh, what she did for you know most of her life, the fact that they both lived in New York, like just those snippets have more to say about the person than some sort of huge revelation. Where you know, I mean, it makes the huge revelation at the end much more meaningful because you have you have all these these small moments and kind of just the dancing around it creates it. It lays the framework for basically like let me get to know you before I really decide that the person I'm talking to is not just the person I made up in my head over the past nine years. It's, right. It's, I want to remember that you are who you are and and just still remember you the way it was. Like, you know, I like uh, she makes that comment about uh, molecules, like, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can't think of things rigidly. I can't just assume that everything is always going to be like two hydrogens and, and oxygen equal water. So I can't I can't say that necessarily you the sum of your building blocks of your parts are going to be the same now after you've been changed by all this as we were back then when we were young and stupid and and whatnot. Time may change me, right? But I can't change time. Bowie, deep. <laughs> um, well, have we done our metacritical yet? Uh, no, we can go do that. All right, let's do it. A metacritical. Rob's never gonna win a metacritical. Brady's the victor again. So it's time to play. I'm gonna lose today. Metacritical, yeah, it's time, time to play. Hi, everybody. 
Uh, welcome to this week's episode of Metacritical, where we're, of course, doing uh, Before Sunset is the name of the film. It's by Richard Linkletter, so we'll start off with checking out where uh, Waking Life hits on that little Metacritical scale, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you go first. Okay, I'm actually totally unsure on this. Uh, I'm going to go 75. 75, he says. 75. I'm, I think I can get a bullseye on this by saying 82. Bullseye! <laughs> yes! Did you? Yes! Nice. All right, all right. And for those of you who think I'm cheating, no, no. But I think that I think it was 88 on Rotten Tomatoes way back when. Oh, okay. I looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes. But, I mean, that was when... That was when I was seeing it in the theater, and I had no idea what it was about, and I looked it up before we went. I saw it with Joey and Ross and Bobby. Um, so, yeah. All right. <laughs> Fuck All yeah. Right. Zero for me, man. Well, Waking so. Life isn't really what you'd call an actor's film, but it does feature a moment with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy as their before son oh, yeah, yeah. thing characters. <laughs> uh, so we're going to go with another Ethan Hawke movie. Uh, that's Sidney Lumet's Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Right. Is that the last one he did? He passed, didn't he? Yeah, I think it was his last. Um, I don't know this one at all. I've never seen it. But I do recall it being somewhat well-regarded, but maybe not in the 80s well-regarded. Like, so, I don't know, 75? 75! I'll go... All right, let's flip it up. I'll go 82. All right, and I watch it be ninety two or something like that. Uh, okay, let's see how it goes. Eighty four. Eighty four. Right. Well, may I get to heaven before the devil knows you're dead. All right, so I'm at nine and you're at nine. Oh, we're tied. Sweet. Oh, baby. Okay, next we have uh, Punch Drunk Love for reasons we've well, Phil Hoffman, Philip yeah. Seymour Hoffman. Yes. Philip Seymour Hoffman ties That's in. That's the only possible reason. Yeah. Okay. No other tie-ins in the rest of this show. No. None. Um. None. <laughs> okay. None! <laughs> uh, I guess, is it your turn to go first? Uh, no, I just went first. Oh, yeah, it's my turn. Punch Drunk Love. I'll go 83. You just said that like a very pissed off gangster. 83. Eh, sure. It's a pretty good guess for Punch Drunk Love, but I think they they probably hit it lower. So I'm going to go 77, because that'll get me a chance of being right on, and if not, I'll just do better than you. Yeah. Now, you might be right. 78. 78, wow. Getting close. I'm getting good at this. This year thing. Oh, I like it. I like it. Did you just tell me to go fuck myself? No, no, man, no. I just said I like, I like this. Shut, thing. shut, shut, shut up. <laughs> did you tell me to go fuck myself? Yeah, yes, I did. Oh, you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now we have the master, also from director Paul Thomas Anderson. And it ties in with Phil. And Phil. Which I didn't see it. <clears throat> uh, I think it's a very good movie. 
I really need to see it. Uh, yeah, I think that was the the last one I just didn't get to catch for whatever reason. Um, shit. Well, I just went first, didn't I? No. No, you did eighty three, and then I did seventy seven. Shit, I gotta go first That's on a movie right. I don't know. Mer. Eighty-five. Eighty-five. I'm gonna go. I'll go eighty-two. Eighty-six. Oh, I was super excited when the top one said eighty-five, but that was the Masters of Sex. Okay, that puts me at eleven so far. All right, so Gladiator. Oh uh, yeah, Walking Phoenix, Diane. Right, right, Walking Phoenix. Okay, so uh, you're first. Yeah, I'm first. Let me see. Gladiator. 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 I'm going to go... And the winner is Elizabeth Elliot. <laughs> I'm going to go like 64. I'm I'm not super high on Gladiator. Uh. Yeah, I was... <sighs> I was going to go like 78, but now I'm thinking more like 68 or 72. Uh, I think 68 gets me beating you as long as... Wait, okay, so let me see. I'm ahead of you by maybe seven or something like that. Yeah, seven. I'm really good at estimating how far <laughs> what the scores are because I'm not doing the exact math. Um, so if I'm ahead of you by seven, that means if it's lower than that, that I would only lose four more than you. Right. So if I, if I do 68 and if it's higher than that, I just win. Yes. So I'll do 68. <laughs> okay. Good you strategy. can't win. Sixty-four. That's well. Brady dead on. So. All right. Rob wins by three, three points. Three points. Yes. Well done. Play that awesome drop. Well, not awesome drop, but awesome outro that I rarely get to use. A metacritical in your face, Brady. Hi, everybody. That was a phenomenal round of Metacritical, if I don't say so myself. Well, someone should say it. <laughs> uh, so we're back. Uh, I think Brady had another uh, this, that, or thing to say on a, a thing. Like, it's weird because the ones that we do, the that we like the most and stuff, there's not, there's not really any controversy. We're just like, <laughs> you know, kind of yeah. ejaculating all over the film and saying how great it was. Exactly. Um... But so I guess I mean we've t- there's there is a lot. We to should talk really about ejaculate from a four-story window about this film. Just scream it to the heavens. Yeah, no, I want to find me street. a four-story window. Yeah. Uh, City Hall will do. Uh, all over Emeryville. So <laughs> I guess um, truthfully, I could say more about this movie because I've literally lived inside this eighty minutes. It's a uh, it's a nice eighty minutes to just exist in. But it's got padded walls. It's got padded. Oh yeah, and it smells like baguettes. So instead, uh, I'd like to tie in to uh, Linklater's most recent movie, Boyhood, which is uh, amazing, and you should check it out. And and we'll probably never do it on Metacritical because everybody already knows it's like ninety eight or ninety nine. It's one hundred. It's it's the oh, it's only the only movie I know of that actually has you know a full slate of reviews. Like I think. Yeah, something like Toy Story might have a hundred, but with like twelve reviews, Boyhood's got like forty reviews, and it's right, right. Um, not to diss on Toy Story, 
I would never. Toy Story is great. Toy Story is great. I will go sailing no, no more. Uh, so I just like to uh, mention an anecdote uh, that I think I posted about on my Facebook account, and it was a thought that occurred to me walking out of the movie. And I was like, well, you know, Linklater has dealt with so many phases of human life. You know, with the Before series, we have people in their 20s, Before Sunset, people in their 30s, and finally Before Midnight last year, people in their 40s. Uh, We have Waking Life, which, to my mind, at least toys with the idea that it's about the moment after death, that after death do we live in this kind of dream state built of our thoughts and experiences. And so what's interesting to me is now with Boyhood, which Linklater traced someone aging from age 7 to 19, uh, well, one, that Linklater pretty much has touched every part of the human experience with regards to age, but also this idea that wouldn't it be interesting that like maybe this could be the same character? And, and Linklater himself kind of toyed with it recently in a tweet where he's like, "Well, she, like they asked him, what what do you see next for the character of oh, Mason?" In an interview, right? It, yeah, it was in an it was in an interview, and he they asked him, "What do you see? You know, when Mason, the main character of Boyhood, goes to college, what happens next?" And Linklater said, "Well, we all know how college works. I mean, college is college, uh, but after that." I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if he got on a train in Europe and spoke to a young French woman? And so I, I just think it's really interesting that Linklater is covering so much of the human experience. That said, while watching this, I think it's better as an idea than an actual thing. And there are subtle differences, of course. One, that this character's name is Jesse, and the boyhood character's name is Mason. Also, when uh, Jesse's talking about his father, he makes him sound like maybe a little bit of like a bigot or kind of a, a repressed kind of not super socially progressive type. And we know that the Hawk character, the father that Hawk plays in Boyhood, is actually quite progressive and uh, an Obama supporter and all that. Right, 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 right. But that doesn't derail the fact that... Very interesting food for thought. Anyway, that's my thought. Well, yeah, and then, well, your other thought, I think that you've told me at least, maybe in confidence, um, was that the next thing he's got to do then is a film about death because he hasn't covered that yet. Well, I think with Waking Life, I think, but an old age film is what I really would like to see from him I always him felt next. like Waking Life was kind of about pre-birth. Yeah, I mean... But maybe in an uh, essence that is death, from death. Well, because they talk about... To death we go or something like that. The the thing they talk about at one point is that, you know, if you... Uh, in fact, it's actually the Hawk and Duppy characters that have this conversation. Right. Uh, where it's like... Have you ever had it where you just have these dreams that's like you're dreaming for an entire day and you go to sleep at 8.15 and you wake up from it and it's 8.17? Right. And so like even a little bit of dream time could be a colossal amount of living real time so that in the last moments of death, that could be a world unto itself of time opening up. Well, yeah, that's something like American Beauty toys with is like I think of Jane and I think of this person and right. then it just kind of expands into a sea of this or that or something like that and yeah, i'm just reliving my life as memories and as seconds that i can stretch for an infinite amount of time indeed uh but yes rob do you have any final thoughts uh, it's a really good movie i want to yeah. i'm gonna watch watch the first one with with madeline who's been featured on the show a couple times oh has she seen it no, she hasn't seen oh, any cool. of them, so she would really like them. Nice. So I'll probably go through those with her, or my mom, or maybe my mom and her. My mom would like them. My mom likes Ethan Hawke. 
Yeah, I I'm starting to really like him. After after Boyhood, I'm like I'm with him. I rather liked him in Gattaca way back when. I, I need was, to see that again. I was big on that movie. I've seen it a few times. But uh that was one of the first movies that I went like, wow, that was really a cool film. It was like anachronistic and there's sort of this idea that it's in the future, but everything looks futuristic, but then also like back in the twenties. So do I have more thoughts? Is the answer is your question and I guess the answer is yes, I have many thoughts, but about this uh, I keep getting away from them, or they keep getting away from me. Mm, powerful. Thoughts. And all of these will be lost like tears in the rain. Like tears. In the rain? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so what are we doing next week? Um, Let me see. I wanted to do What Dreams May Come. Right, for Robin Williams. Right. Well, I can respect that. In that case, I'll just I'll just propose something I've been proposing. You know, this is how you establish a precedent. One day it will be selected because I've proposed it. It's like politicians. Um, so I'm I'm going to submit Grizzly Man again. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to submit the Romanian one about the weeks and days and months and. Uh, maybe one day. No, I I would actually like to see that. I've heard good things. Uh, Grizzly Man, I will watch with you sometime soon. I'd rather. To do what dreams may come next week. I know. Robin Williams. I'm super, super worried about being just horrified by Grizzly Man. Oh, uh. I know a lot of people have watched and been like, that was one of the most uncomfortable things I've ever watched. And I'm sure it is. And I'm sure it's very good because of it. But. I wouldn't say uncomfortable, more that it swirls at the eddy of madness within the human soul. Yeah, it's. It sounds like a drug trip I don't want to take unless I'm in the right headspace. <laughs> yes. Because otherwise I'll get in the headspace of the character and you don't want to see me when I'm like that. All right. Well I then beat you. I beat you. I beat you. I fucking. I oh, fuck you saw you. this? I beat you. I beat you, motherfucker. Exactly. Uh, you don't. Well, so I did beat you. You did. What? So what dreams may come? I think it's unanimous. That's uh, yeah, yeah, let's do that because you've never seen it. I've never seen and it. And it's actually one of my more favorite movies. I watched it sometime in 2006 and went like, you know, that's a really fucking cool movie. So yeah, um, I, I highly underrated and I think we should do it. Give and me a, a good polarizing movie, Williams. man. Those those can be fun. All right. Uh, cool. Yeah. Let's do it. Uh, three, two, one. Clock. <laughs> I was going to say, um, no, who is it? Adrian who's always uh, posting our stuff. Thank you for listening, Adrian. Theme song. <laughs> Carnivorous couch, it happens once a week It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak Carnivorous couch With Brady and Rob <laughs>